It's not a real voice. Uh, this box just interprets signals from the computer and turns them into sound. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the Intermillennium Media Project, the IMMP. I'm Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and uh, it's movie time again. I made him watch another movie. Yay! <laughs> We're on a trend now because of video games. So this is a movie from 1983 that I saw when it was in theaters. It's actually an early date that your mom and I went on was to see this movie. Oh, hey. Thank you. <laughs> I exist. <laughs> and the movie is War Games. Yes. 1983 starring Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, Dabney Coleman. John uh, Wood. Barry Corbin. And and really a, a remarkable cast. Lots of people that you will recognize from tons of other '80s movies, uh, from from this to Back to the Future, and quite a cast. I have been waiting for us to do this movie since the start of the podcast. Really, absolutely. War Games is one of those films I was aware of before I ever saw it. Because it is so integrated into pop culture that it was inescapable. And part of it is because all of these actors are recognizable. Which means I had seen so many uh, bits and pieces of it in early, like the internet getting going in the way I know it now. It had already established, but the sites and the websites and things, this is going to be so, this is so awkward and dating of things, but I saw on Gaia online forums, (laughs) people using bad quality gifts ripped from this movie somehow as early reaction posts. I was looking for a, for an old sprite sheet for an image edit. I was doing a couple of days ago and I ran into a screenshot of, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is saying spoilers or not, but the giant computer monitor saying, interesting, the only way to win is not to play. I found a giant screenshot of that just embedded in my sprite sheet folder because it was an image I thought I needed to have on hand regularly enough to use it. This is a... It's almost not its own object. It has been referenced and recited and scattered to the winds in these early internet community things I was dealing with in that sense. Like or my, my early for me, like the earlier things I ran into the internet had this scattered as the background radiation of how you reference media that it just always was. And everything else was just offshoots from it instead of it being a concise thing of in and of itself. You don't reference war games. War games is just the thing. Everything references. It was very influential. It was not only influential on a certain kind of 80s movie, because it definitely had an impact on movie making in the 80s, but it was also influential on this overlapping set of subcultures that were coming into their own at the time, kind of the early 80s resurgence of phone freaking and that leading into the kind of the hacker scene in the 80s. You're talking about it's 
its impact on the kind of the early public internet. I also remember its impact before the popularity of the or the availability of the public internet on uh, the computer BBS scene. And to some extent, it's one of those movies where people who were interested in something but below a certain age saw in this something to emulate, and they sort of grew their portion of the subculture around what they saw in this movie. Such that we, well, I'm also going to have to reference another movie that we've talked about initially in a, uh, a Patreon special, but that's Hackers. Yes, I was about to say. This movie influenced the culture that was then reflected back in a fantasized way in the movie Hackers. You, you, I'm thinking about uh, computer magazines from the 80s, and you look in the back, all these ads for uh, in, indie software you could uh, order by mail. There were so many war games dialer programs. And the term war dialing became a thing, and it's based on its its appearance in this movie, the ability to just check an entire phone number prefix and make a note of any kind of uh, computer signal you get back to go investigate later. I, I was, when I was on the internet, you wound up with war games and hackers, because I was just there in the late 90s, early aughts getting into this stuff, and then through the aughts as I went through middle school and high school and such. But you wind up with war games and hackers then it's like hal 9000 in 2001 and the terminator future scenes as like four points that generate a line of what's going to happen with computers and you put that with early aughts level of i can only describe it as pop culture nihilistic optimism <laughs> and you wind up with this like well, we know where we started, and we know where the train's going. Everyone wave your hands. We're going to cause the AI to kill us all. It got really weird, but this idea of, here's computer systems that can cause terrible havoc, and we don't know how to deal with them. It just becomes the background stylings, and War Games kind of sets that in motion as the first part of this terrible line that was way too prevalent on all of these sites I visited. In the in the unlikely event that anybody listening hasn't seen War Games, just to give a very o a sketchy overview of the plot, military uh, you know, uh, ballistic missile systems, the nuclear arsenal, is under is put under control of the the computer that's designed to figure out whether or not we need to launch based upon all the war games that it's playing, all the simulations that it's constantly running. Hacker Kid, played by by Matthew Broderick stumbles upon this thinks he's playing a game kicks off the computer towards um launching missiles and starting world war three and then through investigating and working against and eventually working with the authorities manages to save the day it's very hard therefore to take this movie and peg it as a, a pro-technology movie an anti-technology movie it is one of those, especially for its time, relatively rare movies where the technology is just the environment. It's what is in the world, and it's what people are choosing to do with it that yeah. makes the difference. It's not telling you a cautionary tale about technology. It's a cautionary tale about militarism, 
and a certain approach to this and a certain approach to trusting technology, but not about the technology itself. The the Whopper, the big supercomputer, is given personality, I would say, but it's just given the personality of being persistent in a very cold computer kind of way. It will, if asked to start a program, it will keep trying to run the program. And the fact that it cannot, it does not know how to give up is actually the problem. And the rest of the movie happens around that. But in some ways, Whopper is just doing its own thing throughout the entire film. And that is exactly what you're describing. It's, it's not antagonistic. It's, it's loyal. It's almost, it's dogged. It, it's, it's, it's almost very much like a, a loyal pet in some ways to its creator. Because it's just like, are you him? Hi. Are we playing a game now? Yes, please. There's something slightly canine about it. Just like <laughs> I could see it wagging its giant robotic tail if it had one about the fact that it gets to play again. And you put, have to make allowances for the Hollywood stylization of its ability to communicate in what seems like a very human and creative way. Its ability to learn really, really quickly, although they do rec- they do acknowledge that as the kind of the science fictional part of this is that this incredible computer scientist was able to develop a computer that learns so well. But you make allowances for all of those, and it does a really good uh, job of depicting a computer system that is going to—you give it a set of instructions, it will keep executing them until there is an instruction that tells it to stop. I'm not always a fan of the differentiation between calling things hard and soft sci-fi. I hear you know, hard sci-fi is— uh, present a a solid technology and then write a story about how that changes the world. And I've heard soft sci-fi as use a sci-fi setting of environment to tell a story about how the people and the the psychology and those soft air quotes soft sciences react to this. And I don't think that's very true. But if you use that metric, this is the one of the great examples that breaks it because. It presents a clear, hard sci-fi of a, like, this is a computer that has been developed to be able to process through a game and learn from that and iterate rapidly. But the story is all about the soft science psychology of how everyone responds to this thing being in control in some ways. It's about teaching the hard sci-fi thing a soft sci-fi concept in the end. That's an interesting distinction in the way you describe that hard and soft sci-fi. Uh, I tend to think of that as a continuum. Things are harder or softer than other things. And so so they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I tend to think something that spends more time and attention on how the warp drive works and the physics behind it is more towards the hard science fiction. Something that spends more time and attention on what kind of a society is going to be growing in a civilization that has warp drive that softer science fiction so you're right that this this bounces back and forth this finds kind of a stable place near the middle of the continuum it's not hard sci-fi in terms of its approach to computer science no and yet it acknowledges some some of the fundamentals of computer science to the extent it needs to to tell its story so i'd say it it's relatively soft sci-fi 
that adds enough of the hard stuff for flavor. You could poke a lot of holes in its depiction of computer science, but it's not trying to be a treatise on computer science. Yeah. Although thinking about the way it approaches computers is just making me realize that <laughs> this is the other this is the the other of the two movies with Matthew Broderick where everyone wants his bedroom <laughs> because he gets all the cool technology and gadgets in it. Because the first instance we see of how it's doing that is this war dialing thing, and he's got the the phone line connection built in, but he's got his speaker box and his giant array of floppy disks, his computer, <laughs> and I'm just thinking like. Yeah, between this and Ferris Bueller, he has all the cool tech a lot of the time, doesn't he? <laughs> you, oh, uh, we need a stinger for uh, for is this on uh, AO3. There's got to be crossover fanfic where David Lightman and Ferris Bueller wind up having to join forces for some kind of mischief. I'm checking that right now. <laughs> And while we're talking about characters, uh, we'd mentioned hackers. It is, is it now any more clear, or could it be any more clear, that uh, the kid in Hackers, who went on to play um, Sherlock Holmes and a bunch of other things, but in Hackers, he was, in doing his American accent, he was doing his darndest to do a Matthew Broderick impression. It was just distracting sometimes in the movie Hackers, the extent to which he was happening to or trying to sound like Matthew Broderick. Oh, absolutely. Um, how is it no? Oh, that is a failing. Come on, internet. You're letting me down. I've found multiple uh, that mix somehow War Games, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a um, couple of them that are throwing Tron and Terminator into the mix. There's one that, add, that mix it's a crossover with the wizard but nothing with ferris bueller oh come on internet you're letting me down where's your imagination two matthew broderick high schoolers each with its own his their own particular skills in mischief these guys could get something done absolutely this is this is this is a bizarre call to action <laughs> mid-episode but come on somebody please but Matthew Broderick is also very good at playing out of his depth terrified, which he does a lot in this. He's like, I know my specific set of skills, and I'm not supposed to be here. Please let me out of here. <laughs> There's a lot of beautiful shots that are supposed to be uh, set in uh, Cheyenne Mountain, right? Uh, Cheyenne Mountain here in Colorado. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And I, I think they did uh, shoot around the entrances. Although although they weren't allowed into the actual uh, bunker complex, so... No, but their set design for things like the giant shock absorbers and such that are inside Cheyenne Mountain, obviously they studied the, the photographs that had been made public and were publicity photos for, or, or you know, informational photos about how the Cheyenne Mountain complex was constructed, because... I uh, I happened to be I, I was in preparation for this. I was looking at some of those pictures, and yeah, they got it right in a lot of the uh, the interior scenes. Apparently, uh, they weren't allowed to see anything from inside, but the people from inside definitely took a very clear idea as to how they did layouts here <laughs> later on, review it for everything they could. And so much happens. Speaking of the interiors, so much happens in that main command and control center. 
they shoot that so well because it looks vast and complicated. And every once in a while, there's like a reverse angle or something when you're, where you realize this is on a fairly small soundstage put together on a fairly modest budget. And yet it's designed and, and decorated and shot in such a way that it looks very, very impressive. They didn't make screens as big as the ones they show. There was not screens available to do that. So they strung giant sheets, super taut, put projectors with the, with the special effects footage they wanted filmed in reverse behind them and rear projected all of the giant TV monitors in the state, in the, that complex and then just played that and then filmed scenes in front of it. Well, for a plenty of stuff, apparently. That's, isn't that more or less how those big screens worked at the time? It's not like they had giant LCDs in the, in the 80s and 70s. Yeah, they but rebuilt they, it. <laughs> they rebuilt it because they're on a film studio. They rebuilt it with all the film projectors they had. <laughs> so they, they, they recreated even the same technology, but they used you know, their, their, their cinematography equipment and a trip to JCPenney and maybe a trip to Radio Shack. Exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> okay, no one builds TVs that big. We build TVs that big. We'll make it ourselves <laughs> in the most perfect way. But it also means that, like, I'm not sure what it would sound like to have a whole lot of open-air film projectors running in the background there. That's got to be a whole thing. But, I mean, that is, that is just one of those fun special effects. And they did all the the glass room offices up above on risers in the same uh, studio area so that you could always see this impressive control room set inside other scenes at various points. And it gave them a lot of flexibility in these long shots where you see somebody in the office from the point of view of people down in the control room and, and vice versa. Um, it, it made it very dynamic. It made it seem very big and complex and like a, this functioning command center. But the fact that it has such a nice central location with such an interesting visual appeal means that there's something almost stage play-like it at times. You're, yes, there is. You're right. You this could, big space in which people are moving back and forth and interacting. You could probably do a stage performance of this just because it's about the people the places they are are important because it's important for status and who can do what at what time. But it's not like there's a lot more scenes of person at place does thing. And a lot of the getting from point A to point B gets skipped over. When he gets taken away and brought into custody, they do a, a kind of a jump cut from like thrown into truck and then at the place. We don't see a lot of travel time most of the time. Yeah, it, it is odd where he's taken from suburban Seattle, and next thing you know, he's in uh, at Cheyenne Mountain in uh, Colorado. And A, I'm not entirely sure why was it really necessary to bring him to Colorado, although I guess McKittrick, Dabney Coleman's character, wanted to question him himself, and he was working at Cheyenne Mountain. But... But yeah, first of all, why bring him there? And and you're right, he's just that's that's a longer trip than they than they seem to indicate. Yeah, there is there is a couple of bits there where it's like this is weirdly convenient. Another instance where I'm I guess spoiler warning. Usually we don't bother, but it seems important. This one, 
the fact that the computer, the Whopper just openly states secret address in like, wait, what? <laughs> like, let me get a who is on that and find out this because it's literally the computer slipping up that gives us the next plot point later for being able to solve this. Right. This person who is essentially in the military industrial scientific version of witness protection, the computer has his address and oh. is, is not very uh, careful about who they give it to. Now, granted, that kind of access security wasn't as big an issue or wasn't recognized as quite as big an issue at the time. It was still important. But the idea that someone from the outside would have access to this machine that's buried in the, the NORAD command center, not connected to any internet, and the public couldn't get on the internet anyway, kind of, it was the physical security, it was most of the security. And it was a weird fluke that this kid was able to get in and get this info. He, like, got in through a maintenance phone connection they'd had, from what they were saying. Like, it was hooked up to do an update or, like, a report back while they were doing setup, and he got it at the right time. Right. It was this thing that was used in the initial installation and maintenance, and nobody even remembered the connection was there. Because, yeah, at the time, you really needed this thing connected to a phone line through a modem. It's not like... It's connected to the local network, and the local network is going to get you to the internet. And I also like the fact that it wasn't just a question of getting access to the computer. He also had to figure out a way into the computer. And there are some great scenes of this detective work that David Lightman, Broderick's character, is doing to learn as much as he can about the person who built this system. Um, first he has to learn more about what this system is and then about who built this system and about this person until he found some detail that gave him an idea as to what the back door might be. Oh, he, he does get help from his hacker friends to do that, which is a weird little scene of pulling in two buddies purely for exposition's sake. Although they kind of couch that in the, let me use my friends to impress this girl I'm interested in. (laughs) And it also, it, and these, these two hacker, these two computer science characters, they are very much stereotype tropes of dysfunctional hacker personalities. Remember you told me to tell you when you were acting rudely and insensitively? Remember that? You're doing it right now. And yet they serve a function in the movie because you can see that it wouldn't take a whole lot to push David Lightman down that road. But he's got a certain breadth of interest that's kept him from that. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he's you know, a, a young, attractive teenager is probably helping, too. He's got a social life, or he's building a social life of some kind. But, yeah, putting that, we get a lot of different points of reference for the context of what the world of computers was at the time. Most of them are Hollywood exaggerations, but they triangulate in an interesting way. Yeah. And and Ali Sheedy's character is the audience surrogate in many ways. I think she's a very important character in that she's someone who is kind of like Lightman. She's smart, but an underachiever, not into school necessarily. She doesn't know anything about the computer stuff. But she is she's interested and she is sometimes connecting dots that Lightman does not. Yeah, she's got an observation and a bit more of a person, a little bit more people sense than he does in things. 
and she's also got more initiative. She's very into sports. She's very athletic. She is a very much a charge ahead, including in the face of physical challenges that white men might shrink from. In some unfortunate ways, a more modern movie would have given a room of lasers for her to dodge her way through with the with the amount of setups they give her on things. Yeah. And we have our military representation, which is interesting because it's very split. There is a a very gruff but posturing side of the military we see here where it's like about how you're being seen doing it and showing you've got the initiative and such. But then you have a very much like, I'm here to do the job and the job is important side. And this like, the human element of the people aspect that is very, very interesting. The the opening uh, bit before we get to any of the main characters, I think is great because you get this this very rigid formal introduction of them doing all the paper of this this two man team doing the the regimented uh entry of you know coming in signing out their things getting their stuff in and this, this is the the missile silo crew at the missile silo crew at this secret building they're doing all this formal stuff and they're just chatting like it's a day job the entire time so it's this very formal regimented thing all the audio is very casual and it's human. And they do a very, very fun switch when something goes off during the test there because the guy you expect to be the the young guy who is not sure about what he's doing is the one who follows the rules. And the guy who seems to be the more experienced, the the leader is the one who second guesses things and they pull a nice little reversal just to hammer home the this is about the people inside the structure first there's a reason why turn your key sir is a hashtag yes <laughs> and i've i've got to acknowledge that is um that scene is played by uh, john spencer as the captain and michael madston as the lieutenant the the junior officer on this two person missile silo crew and yeah, it's the, it's the lieutenant who is trying to, is enforcing proper protocols when the captain has cold feet and does not want to turn that key to to launch the missiles. I do wonder sometimes were they trying to drop some kind of a hint that the captain wasn't necessarily cut out for this when on the way in he's ex- describing his favorite strains of marijuana. Uh? And that rings a little differently in uh in 1983 than it might today. Yeah, but you could do an entire film study on just that opening bit as a short film. You could write entire papers about that because it is such a a tone-setting mini-film before War Games starts up from there on. And the, the, the point plot-wise of that was that it turns out this was a test. It was one of many tests they've been doing, and a, a disturbing percentage of their crews were refusing to launch the missiles when ordered to do so. And that leads to this debate. Do we do we do something about our training? Do we change this in some way? Or do we take the men out of the loop as as one side is advocating? If we, if all the commands are going to come from this computer anyway, the computer is going to come up with the scenario and recommend launch or not. I'm going to present that the, to the president. The president's going to give the order. 
The general uh, here is going to order the men to launch, and then they're supposed to launch. Why don't we just have the computer launch if that's really where the decision is coming from? And that's that sets up what the, that the computer is more dangerous, and then Broderick getting into it and starting things up is what leads to it now wired to these devices directly, thinking it's playing a game, and the game is legitimately dangerous because the other side can't do anything; it's all fake. But Whopper actually can and is wired to actually respond. And so if it decides to fire a shot in its game, a shot gets fired because it's wired to, and that's the terrifying part. And they make it clear that the computer has no frame of reference to understand game versus reality. All it knows is it has these scenarios reduced to uh, data that it can analyze. It runs through these scenarios with different variables and comes to a recommendation for each possible scenario. It doesn't know whether this is going to result in a missile launch or when if it, if it goes ahead to launch the missiles, um, uh, then it's really going to happen. As, as the computer puts it, when asked, is this real or is this a game? The computer says, what's the difference? It literally doesn't know. And yet... Once it's put in the context of a game with another player, when Matthew Broderick starts this game of thermo global thermonuclear war, not realizing who he's playing it against, the computer takes this seriously such that it knows that it can't really launch the missiles until NORAD is at DEFCON 1. So it starts to manipulate the data that's being presented to the decision makers who set that defense condition so that they will start to get nervous and bring them closer to DEFCON 1. It figures if my victory condition is to launch my missiles, then one of my strategies has to be to convince the humans to bring us to DEFCON 1. And that's one of those like, oh... You made an adaptable machine, and it's adapting to this scenario in a creepy way, because <laughs> it starts to pl like playing with things and causing incidents there, just to try to terrify the people into action. Is that that's the closest Whopper gets to being a proper villain character, <laughs> and a lot of the the tension is between General Berenger, uh, Barry Corbin's character, and John McKittrick, Dabney Coleman's character. Another Dabney Coleman movie. We saw him uh, most recently on the IWMP in Cloak and Dagger, yes. in which he was playing an Air Force officer. Oh, absolutely. But General McKittrick is against the idea of taking humans out of the loop. And it's easy to conclude at the beginning that it has to do with chain of command and and how much power is under his command. And if you just, why do we have an air force if computers are just going to tell rockets to launch? And yet it becomes clear that it's about more than that. It is about the importance of these decisions. It's about the need for human insight and human decisions every step of the way. And on the other hand, we've got McKittrick who is a computer scientist and he oversees this, the technology and the computer aspects of this missile command center 
and you know, the U.S. Strategic Missile Command, and I think really does believe that we are we're doing this job better if we trust the technology we have invested so much human capital in developing. And in terms of the whole you know, global military context, it always is a little disorienting now to see these early 80s movies with the, 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 the eternal standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. And you know, would anybody have believed how, what a short time later there simply would not be a Soviet Union? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Soviets are mentioned multiple times, but they're never shown. They are intentionally not a physical presence at any time. They're just an, an entity that exists in reference. They are a, a whispered word, a, a statement of part of what's going on, but they're not ever represented. That is a great point. There's never a meanwhile in Moscow because they're irrelevant to what's happening with Whopper. And it really does emphasize the game theory aspect of this, this making decisions in a context of limited, incomplete information. We, we have no insight into what the Soviets are really doing. We have to trust what we can infer from what our sensors and our surveillance systems tell us. And we don't know that those are being manipulated by a computer who is trying to win a game by starting a war. The most physical thing we ever, uh, physical is even, the most like specific thing we ever see of them are bogeys on radar that vanish when you get near them. It literally turns them into ghosts in a way that they're not in it. That mirrors reality later where the, <laughs> the, the Soviets are there. And when we get there, they disappear. Weirdly enough, that's similar to kind of what happened. They poof. And when that happens, and, and when that happens, there are advisors there and there are intelligence officers who are advising the, um, the general about reports of this new Soviet stealth technology. They are trying to figure out how what we've observed through these systems can be true and never question the systems themselves, never question the idea that maybe our sensors really didn't pick up anything, but the the computer that's putting this stuff up on the screen is lying to us. That never occurs to them. It's always easier to blame the the person at the keyboard than it is to ever blame the keyboard or the machine in that weird sense. <laughs> and thinking about going back to the kind of the computer and the hacker aspects of this, thinking about the different kinds of computer science people that we see I don't think that David Lightman is much of a hacker or has that much by way of computer skills. No. He's yeah. got some phone freaking skills and some, some hardware skills. And he, he turns out to have investigative skills and just even just in terms of research and finding out more about the person who built this uh, system. But we don't really see him do much that's that impressive in terms of his ability to manipulate computers. He's kind of a weasel. His way to get into the the school computer system to change his grades when he needs to is to intentionally get in trouble periodically so that he can be sent to the principal's office because he knows where they write down the password. Yeah. That's not really much. It's not even very good social engineering, let alone computer that's hacking. That's grifting. It's a very different thing. But yeah, 
and when when he's there trying to teach the computer teach whopper it's it's big moral lesson at the end he has to get instructions on how, what uh how to uh activate the code and the program to teach it how to play a game against itself from the actual computer experts in the room of the like i can do this manually but is there a way to make it play the game against itself and yes you put in zero players it's like okay he has to be explained that that's that's an ex- a weird little example I could see him as somebody who can, has the potential to learn a great deal, and maybe has the potential to be more of that interface between broader human culture and computer science, but he's not the computer genius. I think that at the time, anybody who chose to put any time into this was considered part of this strange self-selected priesthood. We actually see him keeping up to date using magazines and such and about the current and newest computer programs and software. We see him uh, taking an interest in getting that information early for release. He has a large number of mostly off-the-shelf components that he's wired up and proven their utility with each other. David Lightman would be better off running a computer shop later in the future. That may be, yeah. he is keeping the news and the supply and he knows what all the things does but he'd be this central hub for a community who's looking to have to get their components to build their rigs and do their things later he becomes a little bit of the the business frontman who can make connections for a community that wouldn't otherwise if i'm thinking a future version of him and i think what what our our conversation is is proving to me something I've long suspected is that this the movie War Games is mostly about the parts that it's made of. I could argue that the movie is a little bit less than the sum of its parts, and yet I don't want to say that because it's an enjoyable movie. I'll watch it any time. And yet, when I think about all these components, I almost expect it to be bigger and more spectacular than it is. Absolutely. There's so many... There's so many, this is in some we- weird reason why it doesn't stay as a can- cohesive entity when it hits the the pop culture dispersion method that is the internet nowadays. It separates out into these components and all of those take their places because it is this 80s teen film. It is this computer sci-fi film. It is this military industrial complex referencing film it is this weird city hopping film with a lot of lovely nature shots at weird times but all those components go off in their separate directions with different utility in terms of reference in the internet but they don't stay together as war games for you to reference war games in the same way and yet it achieves so many surprising things like being essentially an anti-war movie that is not anti-military yeah it's kind of making the point where if we had dedicated military officers in control still we wouldn't have this problem um so it, it it's never predictable in that way it's a film whose ending is teach a teach a computer tic-tac-toe and cheer the concept of mutually assured destruction as a deterrent 
I guess, yeah, that is what it comes down to. Yeah. No matter what I do in this game, I'm going to lose, so maybe we shouldn't play. The only winning move is not to play. That's a <laughs> powerful statement. Actually, I'm remembering why it's in the sprite sheet list I have. It's in a Pokemon sprite sheet list. That was so. <laughs> I was pulling that from forums talking about trying to catch them all. Okay, I'm flashing back to last episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. It all comes together. But yeah, it's 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 a movie that celebrates the concept of that uh, authority being useful, but then chastises it for overstepping its bounds or circumventing its thought process. Well, the more we talk about where this movie ends up, I the more I think we're uh, we're leading into our final questions. Absolutely. So it's a movie. So the first question has got to be a uh, screen or no screen. Screen. Yeah, screen this one. It's, it's, we didn't talk a lot about the way it actually, there's a lot of weird bits that I almost want to call downtime. There's some bits where they reiterate and they stretch out a little. It's, it's not a constantly moving film, but it's not disinteresting during any part, I'd say. I, I agree. It, it does have, I think, a very interesting pacing in that it isn't a, you know, pedal to the floor action uh suspense movie and 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 yet there's always something moving forward and the times when it slows down it slows down there's always this ticking clock in the background and yet it doesn't necessarily have to always be running in response to that yeah you you can go grab your popcorn but you'll want to come back to the couch <laughs> to keep watching soon yep. after so yeah i'd say screen this i'd say screen so much Especially because if you've run into the references and you haven't seen it, watch the film to find where all the other references are. <laughs> this is stitching back together things you've seen in the background plenty of times then. Turn your key, sir. Want to play a game? How about a nice game of chess? Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. war. Uh, so many so many ter- uh, catchphrases and hashtags and things uh, came from this movie. So question two. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? I have to tangent here. Okay. It got a revival. So I I hear rumors of that. I have refused to pursue them. It got a 2008 direct-to-video sequel. I've watched trailers. I've watched summaries. I don't watch that movie because I hear how awful it is. Remember how we were saying how Whopper has a little bit of a personality, but it's got cold, rigid mentality? Yeah. What if you tried to redo this story without that, and with 2008 military fear, and drones, and what can only be described as a version of Whopper that decides to catfish its version of Light- Lightman with a video game, instead of letting Lightman stumble upon it? because we can't give our main characters actual impetus? And how about a twist reveal at the end where characters from the first movie literally just show up to restate the moral to the new characters and solve the problem that way? (laughs) So the movie could have been five minutes of Dabney Dabney Coleman and Barry Corbin and maybe uh, Matthew Broderick 
Showing up in some kid's house, handing him a DVD of War Games and leaving. Yes, it okay. could have been. Literally, <laughs> the answer to the second War Games movie is to tell someone to watch War Games, and it's <laughs> awful from whatever... I watched trailers, and the trailers had me cringing in my seat because it is bad for 2008's CGI thrown on top of budget that was not properly utilized. There's so much smoke machine and so little to be even obscured by smoke machine. This is not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit I have seen the trailer for that. I try to forget it. it, it the trailer is on our, our copy of War Games, our DVD, so I have seen it, but gosh, that looks bad. The dead code should stay dead. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently it was revived at some point based upon our, our criteria. There was another movie in the same continuity. Putting that aside, what would you like to see? A revival done well? A reboot? Or should it rest in peace? I'm really uncertain here, because... In a reboot, I don't think is necessary. I think War Games is set for its time. It's a thing that utilized when it was in terms of technology and politics and pop culture to tell an excellent story that is still relevant and valid. But the ideas it sets up, I can understand why its sequel got made because there's something about the the systems it shows that is just a little too interesting to let go of. I'm going to say rest in peace, but that's because you shouldn't touch it. Don't dial that machine and start <laughs> it running. You'll wind like, let's not, let's not call up this whopper that makes these films. We should let it rest and do its job. The silently. only winning move is not to play. Exactly. The only winning move is not to make a sequel. Let's not. Uh, I agree. I agree. This is a rest in peace. Um, and I can understand that it does, it, it has had so much influence and it seems like such an important movie that it seems like it should be bigger, like I was saying. And therefore, there's this drive to make it bigger by turning it into a saga and making sequels and things. But it doesn't need that. It, it works on its own, self-contained. And for that reason, as one of the reasons why... We don't certainly don't need a reboot. We don't need to revive it. And the other is that in terms of politics, in terms of the, the global military situation, in terms of the computer technology, it was very much an artifact of its time. And that changes so quickly. There are other movies you can make about technology and war and politics, but War Games was very much an early 80s movie for a number of reasons. It doesn't need to be rebooted. It doesn't need to um, to uh, to be revived with a, a sequel. It, the closest I could ever maybe possibly want to see as a revival in our terms might be a prequel about Dr. Falcon and Dr. McKittrick earlier in their careers building this. I don't know what the story would be, but at least that setting and those characters might be interesting. But even that's a stretch. We don't, even, we don't need a prequel. We certainly don't need a sequel. Let's let it rest in peace. Yeah, you could go, yeah, you could go with a story that gets more into the sci-fi of how Whopper learns. But that becomes a, a different thing that almost doesn't have to be war games related. Yeah. Oh, and there is the implied drama of 
of Falcon deciding at some point that he didn't want to be part of this anymore and and leaving, eventually being given a uh, a new identity. Was there some dramatic break or did he just have enough at some point? So yeah, I, there. if somebody really wanted, had to make another movie related to war games, it should be a prequel, but there's no reason to make it. Yeah. But I'll watch this again. I'll probably watch this again soon. Oh yeah, this is this is definitely a movie you want to pick up and and put on a couple like every once in a while. I'm glad we've got it on hand now just to be able to to see it when the mood strikes and when you want that that very clear feeling of all these pieces coming together. Even just some of the dialogue is just so snappy and so well put together and so distinctive to each character. This is not something where everybody speaks the way the screenwriter does. Everybody has their own way of speaking. I just love Barry Corbin's role. I don't know if this risks our, our clean rating for a podcast. God damn it, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it'd do any good. Let the boy in there, Major. Yes. <laughs> that is such a, 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 a certain approach to technology that comes to mind very, very often in the decades since I first saw this movie. <laughs> so I'm glad you liked it. Yes. I, I, I'm, I've been a fan of this film for a long time, so I'm glad we got to do this episode. But uh, if we're going to to figure out things about computers and connecting to things directly and such, where can they find you online, Dad? Oh, yes, you can uh, you, you can find me uh, at bymatthewporter.com. That's where you'll find links to other things I do. But you can also find me on Twitch as bymatthewporter and on Twitter as bymatthewporter. And Ian, where can people find you? Well, no, no multi-dialer uh, needed. You can just look me up as Item Crafting on Twitter, Item Crafting Live on Twitch, or at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast itself at immproject.com. Uh, that's where you'll find links to all of our back episodes. You'll also find a contact page where you, we'd love to hear from you and a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there as well. Uh, you'll also find a link to our shop uh, a link to our Patreon, if you can support us there, that's awesome. We really appreciate it. And if you can't support us on Patreon, that's fine. We really appreciate your downloading. And by all means, share with your friends. Go ahead and uh, rate us on iTunes. That's a good way for, to help people uh, find us. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. So thanks very much. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.